So a new girl transfers into Rebecca's high school, an all-girls school. And it took a little while for everybody to figure her out because she transferred in from public school, actually from one of the best public schools in the city. But still, in their eyes. She, like, had a, like, a lot of background. And so when she came here, people thought, you know, she's nothing. She's another. Public school kid. Oh, that, it's like, oh, so she's just like. She's ghetto. She's ghetto? <laughs> She's ghetto, meaning she's from public school? No, not that. <laughs> Just the style, because... Uh. Does she dress ghetto? At first, when she first came there. Ghetto and uh, ghetto hoochie mama. Ghetto hoochie mama. I have to admit, I did not know exactly what she meant by that. So, helpfully, Rebecca searched her brain for another phrase to explain it. Um, uh, booty house girl. You know what house music is? Yeah, of course. Um, she was the kind of girl who was all into booty house music. Fact is, there are so many ways of being a teenage girl. And you can switch from one to another. Like one friend of Rebecca's, who started high school with blonde hair, blue eyes. She started with the alternative preppy girls. Gap clothes, straight Gap Banana Republic um, khakis, the crew neck sweaters, and... Um, How'd she talk when she was alternative? With no um, accent, no inflection on any certain... She was just kind of like, yeah, dude, yeah. And um, that year, that was freshman year, and then... She went to uh, the Spanish group after the Latinas, and she dressed in um, big gold hoop earrings and like dark, real dark lipstick, like almost black, and the real thick eyeliner. And then she started saying, "If she'll be talking to you," and she says, "But," and she wouldn't say "but" anymore. She'd say "pero," and that's Spanish. And she'll go, "Ah, oh, mira, mira," you know what I mean? Look, 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 look yeah, right? Yeah. And, she got more and more into it where she'd say, instead of, look at that fine guy, oh, look at that poppy over there. That was all of sophomore year. And then junior year, she was kind of getting like, well, we called it ghetto style because all of a sudden she was dressing with the big baggy pants windbreakers, Nike shirts, big gold chains. And um, if she wanted to tell you, so she got excited. She gets real excited. And okay, she came up to me one day and she's, oh, girl, we was driving in the car. We saw this guy. He was fine. And he looked my way and I was like, what's up, baby? And wow. And, and she got real into it, though, smacking her lips and girl. And um, <laughs> She gets hyper and she's slamming her hands. Oh, yeah, yeah, and... So that was her black year, basically. I think. Now, senior year, that girl is a clueless girl. Clueless, meaning she acts and dresses like the characters in the movie and the TV show, Clueless. Stacked shoes, polyester bell-bottoms, retro 70s style. You know, it is hard to imagine many boys changing style this quickly, this willfully this many times it is very very girl transforming yourself head to toe every year because you can and because you're expected to 
be that obsessed with how you look. So, so Rebecca, we're thinking about calling this week's show. I enjoy being a girl, sort of. And I just want to ask you, <laughs> have any thoughts on that theme? Sort of? Wow, I love being a girl. How so? Because we get to do the fun things. <laughs> the fun things being? I mean, we, we can do whatever we want with our faces, with our clothes, with our hair. And, well, also because girls don't get as much, like, pressure from things like gangs and all that stuff that guys do. Um, we don't have to be hard and try to be, like, macho. Um, but we could if we want to. And <laughs> since, since you know, all the, like, equal, equal, equal rights have come up, we, we can do whatever. Like, way more options than back in the day. It's perfect. It's perfect. Well, no, no, okay, no, it's not perfect, but it's getting there. And it's better than being a guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, today in our program, enjoying being a girl, sort of, and sort of not. Act one, fatty suit. David Sedaris explains how one girl sidestepped her father's wish that she be thin and pretty and focus on getting a man through a technique that was almost like a kind of industrial sabotage. Act two, how to be a man. Writer Sarah Miller attends a class in New York City that teaches women how to walk and talk and act like men. Act three, strength in numbers. Six women, a van, a 12-hour drive to Mississippi that starts in the middle of the night and ends in a casino in a cotton field. Act four, taking sisterhood one step further. A happily married polygamist wife explains how having eight women married to one man is the ultimate feminist lifestyle. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one, fatty suit. David Sedaris has this parable of the pressures on modern women and how one woman, his sister, responded. My father called me late one recent Sunday evening. Excited with the news that my sister Amy was scheduled to appear in a magazine article on young New York women. Can you imagine? he asked. My God, put a camera in front of that girl and she'll shine like a diamond. Between the single men and the job opportunities, her phone is going to be ringing right off the hook. My father has always placed a great deal of importance on his daughter's physical beauty. It is to him their greatest asset and he monitors their appearance with an almost freakish intensity. Because it was always assumed that we would go to college, my brother and I were free to grow as plump and ugly as we liked. I might wander freely through the house drinking pancake batter from a plastic bucket, but the moment one of my sisters overspilled her bikini, our father was right there to mix his metaphors. Jesus, Flossie, what are we running here, a dairy farm? Look at you, you're the size of a tank! Two more pounds and you won't be able to cross state lines without a trucking license. Three of my sisters responded to this pressure by losing themselves, however briefly, to drugs and alcohol. The one exception is my sister Amy, who for as long as I can remember 
has chosen to lose herself in others. For Amy, school was dedicated solely to the study of her teachers. She meticulously charted the repetition of their shoes and blouses and was quick to pinpoint their mannerisms. Practicing alone in the basement, she would pace before her king-size blackboard in full costume. Her imaginary classroom was a forum where the teachers ignored the lesson plan, preferring instead to discuss their elaborate home lives, which most often involved a bedridden mother forced to take oxygen through a tank. My sister turned that same eye on the adults my parents knew from the neighborhood and country club. Choosing from her box of wigs and cast-off dresses, she would prepare herself a false cocktail and sit at the rec room bar, mastering their slurred inflections. She was great as Flo Wagner and Eleanor Kelleher, but vocally her best impersonation was of Penny Midland, a stylish 50-year-old woman who worked part-time at an art gallery my parents used to visit on a regular basis. Wearing a white page boy wig and one of my mother's better caftans, Amy began calling my father at the office. Lou, Penny Midland here. How the hell are you? An awkward conversation list. Our father would fidget before saying, Penny, well, what do you know? Gosh, it's good to hear your voice. The first few times she called, Amy discussed gallery business. But little by little, she began complaining about her husband, a Westinghouse executive named Van. I want out, she'd say. It isn't that I don't care for him as a friend, but at this point in my life, I don't know that I can stay married to a man who... Well, a man who likes boys. I don't know how else to say it. The man likes boys, and that's the way it is. Our father offered comfort with such standard, non-committal phrases as I guess it takes two to tango, or you hang in there, baby. Oh, Lou, it just feels so good to talk to someone who really understands. I walked into the kitchen late one afternoon and came upon my twelve-year-old sister propositioning her father. I was thinking that maybe you and I could get together sometime. Just for laughs, unless we felt like taking it to another level. Amy studied her reflection in the oven door, brushing the white bangs away from her forehead with her heavily jeweled fingers. All I'm saying is that I find you to be a very attractive man. Is that a crime? This was what my mother meant when she accused people of playing a dangerous game. Were my father to accept Penny's offer, Amy would have known him as a philanderer, and wondered who else he might have slept with. Everything he'd ever said would be called into question and scanned for possible sexual content. Was that really a business trip, or had he snuck off to Myrtle Beach with one of the Stravides twins? It is to his credit that our father was such a gentleman. Stammering that he was very flattered to be asked, he let Penny down as gently as possible. He offered to set her up with some available bachelors he knew from his office at IBM and told my sister to take care of herself, adding that she was a very special woman who deserved to be happy. It was years before Amy admitted what she had done. They were relatively uneventful years for our family and, I imagine, a very confusing period of time for poor Penny Midland, who was frequently visited at the art gallery by my father and any number of his divorced business associates, 
Here's the gal I was telling you about," he'd say to Bob Sweetie or Tommy Lathermore. "I think the two of you would make a dynamite couple. I swear to God. Maybe some night this week the two of you could slip away and maybe have a few drinks. Give it a try, why don't you?" The passage of time has not altered my father's obsessive attention to my sister's weight and appearance, and because of that, most of them keep their distance, checking in only by phone. Is it just my imagination? He'll ask, or has your voice gotten fatter? You sound chubby to me. Is everything okay? Because she has maintained her beautiful skin and youthful figure, Amy is my father's greatest treasure. She is by far the most attractive member of our family. Yet she spent most of her life admiring skin diseases and praying for a hump. It's not fair that I can't grow a beard," she'll say, gluing a pebble-sized wart to the side of her nose. Compliments are genuinely lost on her. She can't see any benefit to being herself, and is constantly searching for what she considers a flattering disguise. She's got all the neck braces and false teeth a person could want. And recently spent a good deal of money on a customized fatty suit. She enjoys wearing beneath sweatpants as tight and uninviting as sausage casings. She couldn't afford the matching top, and is reduced to waddling the streets much like two women fused together in some sort of a cruel experiment. From the waist up, she's slim and fit, chugging forward on legs the size of tree trunks. And followed by a wide, dimpled bottom, so thick she could sit on a knitting needle and never feel a thing. She wore it home last Christmas, where our startled, heartbroken father met us at the airport. He managed to silence his disapproval on the short ride to the house, but the moment Amy stepped into the bathroom, he turned to me, shouting, "What the hell has happened to her? Jesus Christ Almighty, this is tearing me apart! I'm in real pain here." What? Your sister, that's what. The girl's ass is the size of a beanbag chair. I thought you were supposed to be keeping an eye on her. I begged him to lower his voice. Please, Dad, don't mention it in front of her. Amy's very sensitive about her, you know. Her what? Go ahead and say it. Her big fat ass. That's what she's ashamed of, and she should be. Christ Almighty, they could land choppers on an ass like that. Oh, Dad. Don't try to defend her, wise guy. She's a single woman, and the clock is ticking away. How's she supposed to find a husband with an ass like that? Well, I said, a lot of men like that. He looked at me with great pity and shook his head. What you don't know could fill a book. My father composed himself when Amy re-entered the room. But the moment she opened the freezer door, he acted as though she were tossing a lit match into the gas tank of his Porsche. What in God's name are you doing? Look at you! You're killing yourself. Amy hugged a quart of ice cream to her chest and searched the drawers for a shovel-sized spoon. Your problem is that you're bored, my father said. You're bored and lonely, and you're eating garbage to fill some kind of stinking void. I know what you're going through, and believe me, you can lick this. First of all, Amy said, "I'm not bored, and besides that, all I've eaten today are a stack of pancakes, 
four donuts, a danish at the airport, and a couple of really small brownies on the plane. She kept it up until our father, his voice cracking with pain, offered to find her some professional help. I'm begging you to reach out before it's too late. We can do this together. There are programs and camps that specialize in this kind of thing, but first you have to admit that you have a problem. When Amy rejected his offer, he attempted to set an example. Settling down to Christmas dinner, he pretended to be satisfied with nothing but a sliver of white meat accompanied by a single spear of broccoli. His athletic regime became theatric. That felt great, he'd say, finishing a round of sit-ups. Now I'll do some squat thrusts, a couple dozen push-ups, and it's off for a satisfying run. Anyone want to join me? Amy? She kept to her fatty suit until her legs were chafed and pimpled. It was on the morning of our return flight when she revealed her joke, and our father, bracing himself against the countertop, wept with delight. Ha ha! He laughed as though he were reading the words off a page, the way he's always done. Ha ha ha! You really had me going. Ha ha! I knew you'd never let yourself go. The fatty suit only reinvigorated him for the photo shoot he'd called about with such enthusiasm. She had me fooled for a minute there, but even with the fat ass, you can't disguise the fact that she's a beautiful person, and that's what really matters. Do you uh? Do you happen to know if they're going to be hiring a professional hairstylist, someone who really knows what they're doing? I sure as hell hope so, because her hair is awfully thin, and someone needs to talk her into losing those bangs. There's a lot I don't tell my father when he calls asking after Amy. He wouldn't understand that she has no interest in getting married, and was, in fact, quite happy to break up with her live-in boyfriend. He was a pleasant, hard-working fellow whom she replaced with a dwarf rabbit named Tattletail. Tattletail enjoys chewing electrical cords, and as a result, my sister's phone is often out of order. But it doesn't seem to bother her that available men can't get through. The last time she was asked out by a successful bachelor, she paused for a few moments before saying, "Thanks for asking, but I'm really just not into white guys right now." This alone would have given my father an aneurysm. The clock is ticking, he says. If she waits much longer, she'll be alone for the rest of her life. This seems to suit Amy just fine. For the time being, she seems perfectly content with her rabbit and an imaginary boyfriend she has named Ricky. We'll be walking the streets of her West Village neighborhood, running errands, when she'll turn to me saying, "Ricky gave me a bumper pool table for our one-month anniversary." I came home this afternoon, and there it was, parked beside the baby grand electric organ he gave me for President's Day. I didn't know you played pool. I'll say, when did you start? How did you learn? Oh, a few months ago, Ricky taught me how to play on our last flight to Korea. You didn't tell me he was Korean. Oh, she'll say he's not. He just has a lot of friends there, so we go to Korea a lot. She carries on like this, and after a while, Ricky seems not only real but very likable. Hey, my father will ask, what do you know about this Ricky person? Amy seems to think he's really something. What exactly has she told you?
It's always best to ask what he's already heard. For all I know, Amy could have claimed that Ricky was a Navy SEAL or the chief surgeon at a hospital specializing in diseases of the kidney or pancreas. When my father called asking about the photo shoot, I feigned ignorance. I didn't tell him that, at the scheduled time, my sister arrived at the studio with unwashed hair and took her place beside a half-dozen women carefully dressed in flattering outfits. She waited while the others had their hair styled into the current fashion. One by one their brows were trained while makeup artists made the most of their lips and cheekbones. When called forth to the styling table, Amy said only, I want to look like someone has beaten me up really, really bad. The makeup artist did a fine job. The black eyes and purple jaw were accentuated by a series of scratch marks on her forehead. Pus yellow pools surrounded her blistered nose, and her swollen lips were fenced with mean rows of brackish stitches. Amy was enchanted with her new look. Following the photo shoot, she wore her bruises to the dry cleaner and grocery store. Most people nervously looked away, but on the rare occasion someone asked what had happened, my sister smiled as brightly as possible, saying, I'm in love, can you believe it? I'm finally, totally in love, and you know what? It feels great. David Sedaris is the author most recently of Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, an editor of the collection Children Playing Before a Statue of Hercules, an anthology of outstanding stories. This story was originally written for Vogue magazine, which then rejected it without explanation. One Vogue employee speculated that perhaps it did not conform enough with Vogue's notions of feminine beauty. David's sister Amy is, among other things, a star of the TV show and someday-to-be-released movie, Strangers with Candy. I can wash up 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line. I can start and iron two dozen shirts before you can count from one to nine. I can scoop up a great big dipper full of lard from the dripping can. Throw the skillet, go out and do my shopping, be back before it melts in the pan. Cause I'm a woman, W-O-M-A-N, I'll say it again. I can rub and scrub till this old house is shining like a dime. Act two, Feed the how to be a man. Well, one of the problems in doing a show like we're doing this week a show made of different stories that seemed to go together because they were all about, at some level, different ways of being a woman or a girl, is that you find yourself treading around all these broad generalizations about men and women that actually none of us really believe. But we figured. We came this far with this theme. We might as well head down the river into the heart of darkness of gender cliches. And playing the Martin Sheen role in our little gender apocalypse now will be Sarah Miller. Sarah Miller, for a while, had the odd job of being a woman who wrote a sex column for men in a men's magazine. Details. That job uh, seemed to consist mostly of correcting guys' gross misperceptions about women. We sent her to a class we heard about in New York City run by a woman named Diane Tor, a class that tries to teach women how to dress and walk and talk like men. So it's kind of a reverse on her regular job. Sarah Miller put on a loose-fitting flannel shirt and tried to imagine transforming herself not just into any man, but into the kind of man who does not have a kind of ambiguous mix of traditionally male and female traits. She would become a guy's guy. 
I have to admit the idea of the workshop made me anxious. Just before I went, I told a friend that I was afraid I already seemed like a guy. I'm tall, I'm loud, I swear a lot. I told him I was afraid that Diane would say something to me like, God, you're a natural, and I would take this to mean you are naturally coarse and masculine and naturally not at all pretty. I shouldn't have worried. It turns out there's a whole world of gestures and attitudes between me in a flannel shirt and me being mistaken for a man. There's the proper way to walk, for example. Diane demonstrated. Sense of ownership. Sense that when I walk into this room, anything, anybody could be mine. I could own anything and anybody or everything in this room. For that moment that my eyes rest there, so that sense of ownership is conveyed in the gaze. They're not afraid to take up the space or to own the space or to check things out. How is this place structured? So when you walk, you think you have a perimeter, a boundary of about three foot around you. Okay? And this character, the way he walks, it's coming from the shoulders. The hips are tight. And he goes side to side at the same time that he goes forward. So it's like this 360 degrees moat around me, okay? Then we gave it a try. I thought slumping was the quickest road to maleness, but when I looked around, I saw the others stood up ramrod straight. We examined each other for clues. And uh, maybe just introduce yourself to different people in the room. Just, you know, shake hands, don't smile, stop smiling. Smiling was the one thing none of us could seem to cut out. Diane had to remind us again and again. So as it became clear to me that I was not going to leave as a convincing man, I manufactured a goal for myself. I was here, I decided, to learn arrogance. Yeah, so you want to cover the nipples first of all. You're going to start wrapping from the bottom. An ace bandage, my sisters, is the first tool you need on your path to gender liberation. Mine was double wide and kept snapping out of my hands as I wrapped it around my chest. It's got to be quite, quite tight, but not so tight that you can't breathe. I mean, that's ridiculous. So remember, you're going to be wearing this the whole day and evening. So should be okay. All right, here we go. This was the actual song we were listening to as we wrapped our chest down. Diane had brought along a tape called Frat Rock to enhance that double X chromosome vibe we were all striving for. My clothes, two big Levi's, a plaid flannel shirt, a Princeton t-shirt with Hebrew letters, all would have hung nicely on a guy's broad shoulders and slim hips, but I looked a little lumpy. My breasts had not disappeared so much as retreated under extreme duress to the middle of my chest, two sad, misplaced lumps uncertain of their meaning. My whiskers were good, but my eyes, Diane pointed this out about all of us, retained the hopeful sweetness of femininity. And if I resembled anything, it was only some strange hybrid of a lumberjack, Lady from Lady and the Tramp, and Marie Antoinette. I made up a new identity. Now my name was Dan Rosen. I was a brown dropout who worked at St. Mark's Bookshop. 
I stacked the Etney readers. I bought Paul Auster novels on discount. My parents lived in Mount Kisco and were lame. Brown was lame. I was lame. I'm Dan. I'm Dan. I'm Dan. I'm Dan and my boobs hurt. As Dan, I sat down for my eating lesson and I noticed that none of us were really winning any prizes in the realness department. Two of the girls had long hair, tied back in ponytails. When you looked at them, you had a split second to decide if they were women dressed up as men or the Almond Brothers, and it wasn't a tough call. One of them asked Diane how we should be sitting. With the legs open. Um, I tell you, taking as much space as possible. Really? <laughs> yeah, you see guys on diners. We sit next to them, and they'll be in these little round seats. And the knees will be pushing right into your, like... On the subway. On the subways as well, you know. We could sit and eat with our legs as wide as we wanted, but we were not men. One of the Almond Brothers spent the meal nibbling her way through about half a piece of pita bread, eating it with the slow deliberation of one not at peace with food. The other Almond Brother looked a little bit like a guy, but she had this way of nodding and saying, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when she listened and it gave her away. Only Diane, dressed up as her alter ego, Dan King, looked like a guy. It was the eyes more than anything else. Hers were cool, detached. They assumed rather than asked. We were all too eager and naive looking. I said that we looked like little does, tenderly eating grass, and everyone laughed. When we finished eating, the place was a mess. Food, napkins, and takeout containers everywhere. No one wanted to clean up. We sat in our men's clothes, staring at everything, not moving. I knew what we were thinking. So now we gotta get some f***ing bitches to clean this shit up, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. My highest hope for the workshop, once I realized I was in very little danger of actually resembling a man, was that I would have some great insight into the mystery of what makes men men and women women. But I think there's no mystery left. The terrain of gender is too familiar, full of places we've visited way too many times. Men are detached, unapologetic, unafraid to take up space. Women are conciliatory and self-effacing. Men gulp, women sip. I'm not sure there's anything Diane or anyone could say that would really surprise any of us. I did have one moment in the workshop where I was walking across the floor, shoulders hunched, lips in a scowl, where I felt what it must be like to be Dan Rosen, college dropout, keeper of the magazine section. Is this it, I thought? Is this what it feels like to be a guy? But I realized that what I felt, useless, defensive, underachieving, bored, tragically adolescent, was not about feeling like a guy, but about remembering what it felt like to be in my early 20s, what it felt like to be a failure. And I don't need to be in drag to tap into that. As our graduation ceremony for the workshop, we wanted to go to a men's club to watch strippers, but it was a Sunday night in Giuliani's New York, and we couldn't find a single one open. I was secretly relieved when we ended up at a restaurant in the West Village. Right there in the booth, I surreptitiously unwrapped my chest. I ordered a Diet Coke and a salad. Hey, lady. Got the love I need Maybe More than enough Oh darling, darling, darling Walk a while with me Oh 
you got so much. Sarah Miller, these days she writes a column for Men's Health magazine. Her novel, Inside the Mind of Gideon Rayburn, is coming out this March. Coming up, polygamy as feminist lifestyle. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and reporters and everyday people to come in and speak on that theme. Today on our program, I enjoy being a girl, sort of. In this second half of our program, we turn from the stories of individual women and girls to stories of groups of women and girls. We have arrived at Act 3, Strength in Numbers. This is the story about one group of women, and I have to say that every woman working on this show at some point during this last week has expressed a little envy for the women in this group. And I think um, maybe the best way to start their story is with their road trip. Barbara, Jewel, Lynn, Tiny, Valerie, and Rosetta decided to leave the husbands and kids and grandkids behind and hit the road. I was the first pickup. And? And they picked me up about 4, 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock in the morning. 4 a.m. We arrived at the donut place. And they were not open. Right. They did not open till seven. That is sad. When you arrive at the donut place, like you were even they were earlier not than open. the donut place. They were place. not open until seven, seven. on the dot. We waiting on six o'clock so we can go into the donut place. I but think Val in there, y'all. I'm gone. We got, we got three hens in the car planning on how we're going to go up here to Rosen Hospital and sneak up in the room. So, so it's like four in the morning, sometime between four and six in the morning on a Friday morning, and it's, you decide that you're going to visit one of your one of your friends, one of the hands who's in the hospital before you hit the road. <laughs> that was going to be a break. Yeah, but you know, I thought we kind of pose as doctors from Europe, and we're coming to see Erling Jones. It's a special case. You know, we could they do it on TV all the time. I can flash my DCFS. You know, I, I was going to play like I work for DCF. I do work for DCFS. <laughs> Department of Children and Family Services. Department of Children and Family Services. I was going to show my ID and said that I had to talk to her about her kids. At 5 in the morning. I'm for DCFS. i got to talk to you about your kids at 5 in the morning. Now, see, I was the last one they picked up, so I didn't know anything about that. And your reaction was? I would not have agreed with that. My, my tablet, they I'm, don't I'm want with you DCFS to legal. I need to have she her had, find some patients. She yeah, had high blood yeah. pressure and her yeah. um, sugar is up, so we don't want to ex- excite her too much, but we want to give her that hand love. Well, all right now, Rosetta. <laughs> <laughs> the hands. Most of them have known each other since they were teenagers, growing up in Inglewood on Chicago's south side. A couple joined the group when they were working with other hands at the switchboard at the Palmer House, a fancy Chicago hotel. Nine women. And every March, they take a big trip together, or they throw a party, 
Like the dinner dance they threw for themselves and their families where everybody wore white and gold. Everybody. This March, they took a tape recorder and drove from Chicago to a casino in Mississippi and back in three days. They visited a stray hen who works down at the casino, Sally. Three of the hens, Jewel, Tiny, and Lynn, came into the studio to talk about the trip and explain what the hens are all about. In the South, they call, They say that when it's a bunch of women that get together, a bunch of hens. Yeah, and they say it in kind of a mean way. Yeah, but we didn't take it as being mean. Hens to the hilt. Hilt. Yeah. That because was our original we traveled, name. We only stayed at Hilton, Hilton Hotels. hotels. So we Dale, just, your husband saying something about they ain't nothing but a bunch, bunch of, of hens. hens. <laughs> now, he did say that in yeah. a mean way. Yeah. Yeah. In a very mean way. <laughs> And you guys will help each other out, like if somebody's out of work or somebody needs some money, you guys will, will help We just out. did something like that recently, the last barbecue holiday. Valerie's son went off to the, uh, to the Army. So we came together with our families and had a big barbecue. And at that barbecue, we scraped together the little money that we had left to send him off to let him know we care and send him off with money in his pocket with all our phone numbers and addresses. Have you got a letter yet? I haven't got <laughs> anything yet. You know, but we know he's doing fine. Yeah. And, we, and we, we, we try to do little, we try to do things like that to let each other's family know that we care, you know. So when, so when your kids were growing up, when your kids were coming up, would you have a lot of contact with each other, you know, talking about all the stuff they were doing? And, and My kids basically stayed with Jill and Barbara all the time. We all had yeah. uh, apartments next door to each other Probably when our babies were one and two. Wow. 101, 102, 103. I was 101. <laughs> yeah. Tiny was 102, and Barbara, Barbara was 103. There's, there's a moment in the tape that you guys recorded in this last trip where really, literally, everyone in the van is talking at the same time. Yeah. And we understand wow. each other. Yeah. I didn't know you, but I know. Right around the corner for me. Okay, but she got right. Right. She she right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We met Tiny Joel. Yeah. We met Tony Hands. Yeah. Yeah. We just wanted to talk to you. I can't see you in my car. No, that was Sally. That was Sally. Let me, now let me get to just the, the facts of how this weekend worked. You guys left at 4 in the morning on Friday morning, and then you drove for how many hours? Because you were heading from Illinois, from Chicago, oh, through yeah. Tennessee, all the way to... 12. It took us 12, 12 hours. 12 you drove 12, 12 hours. straight mm -hmm. hours, more yeah. or less. And where did you oh, end we up? Stopped. Oh, we stopped at a great place. And <laughs> I got this great restaurant, Lambert's, home of the throw roast. It's like, Joe, what you talking about? I said, you guys, they throw the rolls at you. People in the, in the place throwing rolls and you have to catch them. Throwing rolls at you? Throwing yeah, dinner rolls dinner at you. Roll. Hot dinner rolls oh, at you. You can catch, catch, too. Because their rolls are so good that they couldn't serve them fast enough. So one day the owner just threw one, and that's how it started. So all you have to do is just hold up your hand, and they throw it, and you catch it. Now there's a recording of this, and somebody apparently is not doing a very good job doing the catching. <laughs> Me? All right, so what's the name of this place for people listening Lambers. on the radio? Might want Lambers and where right is it? At Interstate 57 and 55, there's it's Lambers. Yeah. Every time we get together, it's not fun and games. But then when we 
get together the following time, you know, we laugh about it because the last time we went to Oak Brook, that really wasn't fun. Why? What happened? Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, for years, Valerie has always, so to speak, picked on Tony. 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 You know, Tony, because Tony is the slow one. You know, she's very slow. You know, you have to wait for her and, <laughs> you know, you have to she help her. She walks with a cane sometimes. Yeah, you know, so she can't decide what sometimes. she wants to put on. And so this particular night, Valerie just picked on Tony one too many times. It was about um, some pictures or something. So the next thing I know, Tony had jumped up out her chair and Valerie, <laughs> and Tony, it was like RoboCop. <laughs> you know, she she just, she said, woom, woom, woom. Coming over there to get Sally. Sally just like stomps ran. her across the room. No, Sally and I looked at each other. We said, oh, Hello. no. We ran and ran. We left from there because I'm not, we left. That's the closest so that was funny. Couple but it wasn't like funny at the time. Right. But we get together now and we laugh about it. There's there's a point uh, where you guys are, are we're in the van and um, you got into this conversation about abortion that began when somebody was talking about uh, these stories in the newspaper and um, there came a point in that conversation, Tiny, where you said um, we were such brave souls to have mm-hmm. to have our kids when we did because mm-hmm. most of you had your kids when you were teenagers. Right, so. we all did. And then and then Barbara says she's kind of off mic. You can barely hear it. She says we're not so brave. I was seven months pregnant before I told you know my <laughs> yeah. father. I, I still, yeah. I, I never forget the look in daddy's face. <laughs> Woo! Boy, I'm glad I made it through that. <laughs> what, did he do? what did he say? You know how did he had that vein, that vein on his head, the pumps. Yeah. You know, and he started jumping. Okay? And he looked at me. That's scary. <laughs> and he said, Who's this? I said, Why? Well, I told <laughs> real. We're not going to have, you know, know, the same amount of fun every time we get together because, you know, our lives are changing. You know, like uh, one time we sat around talking about getting old. You know, we're realizing the heck, we're getting older. You know, when we have, and there's health issues. This year we had a serious uh, issue we faced. We faced Tiny's father dying. But also, and you knew him going back to when you were when you Yeah, were we too. missed him more. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. very scared of that man. <laughs> so you arrived at the hotel uh, a little Friday. before six. A little before six Friday, mm-hmm. and describe the hotel. Beautiful. It was beautiful. It was like Vegas, oh, was sitting in the middle of a cotton field. Yes, it was. Hey, girl. Hey, wow. Look at this room. Wow. Hi. How you doing? Do your husbands uh, have anything like this with their male friends? Or do you no. Think, no. 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 We have no. tried to encourage no. it, but they never do. You know, but they, they, you know, they're real supportive now. You know, we really had to go through a lot. And, and they do get crazy, you know, like the closer we get to that departing time. You know, you know. <laughs> they come up with their little, little bitty <laughs> Your little things, little things, you know, to aggravate you. But my yeah. husband has really gotten used to it. I, I'm thinking he's really gotten tired of me because he's, you know, 
Remember okay. when y'all came to pick me up? He mm-hmm. was just as calm in the yeah, chair. He was sitting like, okay. and that's not like that. He's like, see y'all, y'all have a good time. John was the one. Now this yeah, is my son. Yeah. He calls me in the room. Ma, I want to pray with you. I said, okay, John, I just want to pray for your safe trip. I said, okay, John. And he's holding my hand and he's praying. Now this boy, I, I, I didn't thought know. that was so funny. And I'm like, you know, okay, John. You know, five minutes later, he's still praying. I'm like, okay, John. Amen. Bye. <laughs> I gotta get on my trip. So, my hands are so yeah, for me so I had, I have to deal with John. What would your husband? What would they used to do? What would they used to say when you're about to get ready to go on a trip? Oh, when you coming back? Can we say this on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> My other relationships could not deal with the hands, no. and we had to break up. <laughs> Seriously, we had to be lesbians. Seriously. Yes, oh, we're a bunch yes. of lesbians, and I broke up with. That, that's what they would say. You're a bunch of lesbians. Yes. Mm-hmm. They what, could not deal with the like, idea where are you of sleep women get together. We're gonna sleep together. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. we have so many beds. Each room have a bed, and we're going to sleep together. Somebody is gonna sleep with me that okay. weekend. Hey. Hey. But, but but the men in your lives, they must have their friends who they hang with. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. They do. Oh, but I they can't. don't have the same kind of bond. You know, mm-hmm. they got friends that they hang with. They I don't. don't think men have the they same bond. kind bond. of relationship really that women have. Yeah, I think it's very much a woman's thing. Definitely a I woman's thing. I think it's very much a woman's thing. When I get with the hand, I'm me, I'm tiny. You know, I'm, I don't have to be artist, I don't have to be wife, I don't have to be mother, you know. I'm not sitting up there flirting with anybody's where I got to be a sexy broad. I'm tiny, naturally, okay? And anything that comes to my mind, I could say it. And they can say, oh, is that how you think about it? Well, I think this way, and I like that input. But it's a natural thing. <laughs> The hands, Tiny Lynn and Jewel in the studio. Also, Barbara, Rosetta, Valerie, Sally, Tony, and Jan. Uh, This next song is the song that they always play driving home from their trips when they have to return to their husbands and kids and real life. taking sisterhood one step further. If you ask Elizabeth Joseph, it was the only reasonable choice to marry a man who was already married to five women. She met her husband when she was a senior in college. Well, you look at somebody in my situation, I was almost 21 years old. I could either marry somebody my own age um, and take another 10 years and finish the job of raising him his mother started, 
Or I could marry a proven failure, and I practice divorce uh, law. I, I know there's all kinds of wonderful excuses for divorce, but by definition, it's a failure. And Or I could have found myself somebody um, who had proven himself to be a good husband, but maybe I didn't want to marry a 65-year-old widower. So in Alex, there was no gamble. He was demonstrably a good husband, demonstrably a good father. So there was little risk to the situation. Elizabeth Joseph is an attorney and now public affairs director of a radio station in Utah. We offer her story as part of our show as another example in the continuum of how to be a woman or a girl. She says that because she was in a polygamous marriage, she could do things like go off to law school and finish law school and not have to worry who was taking care of the kids or her husband. There were other wives around for that. In short, she says, polygamy is the ultimate feminist lifestyle. It's having a man on your own terms, you know. He's in your bed, he's in your house at your invitation. Um, you know, the juggling act that so many women have to put on with respect to careers and family is so much relieved in our situation because there are so many of us to uh, share those kinds of household duties and child rearing and husband taking care of. <laughs> so able to go to work with a guilt-free heart and child never sees the inside of a daycare center or anything like that, they're home with people who care about him. Now, your husband has, has eight wives? Yes. And um, and how many of the wives actually uh, stay stay home? Ha- do all of them work? Do just some of them work? Yeah, we all work. We all work. We had, uh, about nine years ago, three of us had uh, babies all in the same year. And there was one wife in particular that we really wanted to watch out for the kids while we were at work. And uh, so we went to her and said, how much... How much is it going to take to get you to quit your job for a couple of years? Till the kids go to school, and so she did that for us. And then she went back to work. When you say how much would it take you, did the rest of you pay her? Yeah, the three of us paid her. Wow. It was only fair. She was working hard. So when when you first met your husband, um, had you been considering polygamy as an option? Oh, only very recently because a friend of his had proposed to me also. Um, but no, I didn't even know it existed when I was in college, until I met my husband and his friend, I, I had no idea anybody was doing it modernly. I was aware of the LDS history of the last century. Right. The, ch- the Latter-day, uh, the, the Mormon Church, the Latter-day mm-hmm. Saints Church. Um, and, and when you met him, he was already married to five women at that point, right? Correct. How did a courtship happen? Like, what actually happened? Well, we were separated by a thousand miles. He proposed by letter. And I came, flew down and spent my spring break, my senior year with him and his family. He'd married two of my best friends from college. So I came, I thought, as much to see them as him. But I just needed to check out the situation, and and, um, I went home married. What did your family say? They were understandably upset. My dad was a very educated but a Montana cowboy, and he told my brothers to get their rifles, and they're coming after after me. Wow. Um, my mother's very educated, smart woman, and she was heartbroken, but she wasn't willing to give up the association with her only daughter to, to maintain a point. Can I ask you to just explain just kind of the practical terms of it? Like, do, does everybody live in separate houses? Does everybody live in the same house? How often do you see Alex? I see Alex every day, um, for sure. Structurally, I have a home that I share with another wife just because it's so huge. And But, like, Margaret has her own place. Uh, 
Bo has her own place, Joanna has her own place, but we're all right close together. Um, and, and that's not, it's not like if he's at Diane and Don's house, I've, I've, I walk right in the front door and make myself at home. I mean, we, we enjoy each other's company. Um, Margaret likes to say that he's more fun when there's more than one of us, just because that's his nature. And, and yeah, there's three of us that have anniversaries real close together, and it's a long-standing tradition for the four of us to go out to dinner together near those anniversaries. And we just, you know, the family spends a lot of time together. The kids uh, are very fond of one another from the different mothers. And uh, it's, uh, so how many, how many kids are there in the, in the family? Twenty, and I'd say about half are grown. And then how, how often will he actually stay with you, if I can ask a question so personal? Yeah, we we actually stay with him. I mean, he's got his own quarters. But um, over the years, it's varied. You know, when I was 20, I had one kind of sexual appetite. And now that I'm in my, I hate to say this, mid-40s, it's a little different. Um, but in talking to my monogamous friends, I, I have that kind of exchange with him as often or more often than they do. And you know, roughly average once a week. It just depends. I've heard um, I've heard uh, Mormon men talk about um, talk about polygamy and talking about the advantage of it as as being this. They say that there are certain things that that a woman looks to a man for, in terms of um, wanting to talk about things and wanting to be close regarding certain kinds mm-hmm. of issues and have a certain kind of of close friendship that a lot of men just they they don't talk that way. They don't relate to other people that way. And so one of the advantages of polygamy is that the women, the wives, can get that from the other wives. That's, that's one of the huge advantages, you know, and, and uh, that's a really nice thing. I mean, some of our funnest times have been when he's been, like, on a business trip and we'll get to ha- together and have a tequila party or something and just laugh our heads off, just have a good time. Because, I, I you know, the, the way the wives feel about one another is we're just extraordinarily proud of one another. We're, we're extremely proud to be associated with one another. And we've had women come into the situation and, and ch- look into it, um, and we didn't like them, and we got rid of them. We're women. We're good at it. Uh, do, do you have some sort of veto power over whether a, a woman actually gets to marry in? Um, in, in? It's not. It's de facto, okay? I mean, the rule is he'll, he'll marry whom he pleases. Yeah. But he has learned over the years that if we don't like yeah. him, there's... It, his relationship with them is going nowhere. So yeah, we've chased off our share. <laughs> and and um, do people get jealous? Do you get jealous? Well, <clears throat> you know, us American girls are raised to be very insecure and jealous. Neither of which is a trait that you would want to embrace. So um, in the early years, I think as with any marriage, it takes a while to feel your way and get and get that security established. And, and yeah, there were times when I go, well, gee, uh, you know, I can see why he likes Margaret. She does that so well, and I don't. But then after a while, you go, yeah, but look what I do that Margaret doesn't. And you just start, and he does that, you know, that's that's his job is to give you that security that not, you know, that he loves you for what you are. And, you know, 25 years into this deal, and we we sort of got it down pat. We're not too threatened uh, at all. Is this something that that you think should be widely recommended to people, or, or do you feel like that you are just in a special situation with a special man, and it's not applicable to other people's lives? Uh, there, it's only certain kind of people. You got to be. For example, I had a son who uh, ha- he had a family, and 
I have a son. But anyway, a girl came to him who'd grown up in our community, and she said what I said. You're obviously a good father and husband. Can I marry you? And he really liked this girl. So he, he But he was blown away. You know, he goes, wow, I don't know if I can do this. And, I, and of course, I knew him very well, my son. I said, you know, Stuart, you're one of the few guys I think can. And he lasted like two months. And, and why do you think it didn't work for him? Well, usually two wives is very difficult. You really need a third um, to, to balance it out. But usually the most common scenario is the two women will gang up on the guy. But you're thinking like one out of ten men that you know could do it. Like It's more like more one out of a hundred. More like one out of a thousand, if not ten thousand. Wow. It's not easy. That's why most of his boys will tell you they they wouldn't entertain it because they know how difficult it is because they watch their dad do it. And the main difficulty is just keeping everybody satisfied and happy? Well, yeah. you gotta you got to be way smart. Like he says, how would you like eight women working your inventory 24 hours a day? And we do. We do. We're strong-willed, independent, say what we think. Yeah, I've, I've, oh, I've only met... I haven't met anybody that could do what Alex has done. I've I've met polygamists, long-term polygamists, who I admire and respect for what they've done, but in terms of demonstration, it doesn't come anything close to his family. Elizabeth Joseph, in Utah. Well, kick it, the rhyme, it is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman could bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to rhyme. Can you relate to a sister's open up to make you holler and scream? Hey, yo, let me take it from here, queen. Excuse me, but I think I'm about to do. To get into precisely what I am about to do. I'm conversating to the folks who have no whatsoever clue. So listen very carefully as I break it down for you. Merrily, 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 merrily. Hi, so happy, overjoyed. Please, with all the beats and rhymes my sisters have employed. Look, as we throwing down the sound totally a yes. Let me state the position. Ladies first. Our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder. Our senior editor for this show, Paul Tuff. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and consigliere Sarah Val. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Laura Doggett, Sylvia Lemus, and Thea Challoner. So thanks today to Paul Chimogletip, Evie Shapiro, and Street Level Youth Media here in Chicago. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our programs are absolutely free or buy CDs of them, or you know you can download today's program and our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America and Hill Hold Assist. Appreciated by anybody named Sisyphus, it is just one of the 120 not-so-standard features found on one all-new German-engineered Passat. Learn more at newpassat.com. WBEZ Management Oversight from Mr. Tori Malatia, who says that from now on, he wants to be called... Ghetto Hoochie Mama. Or perhaps you would prefer... Booty House Girl. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Ladies first, there's no time to rehearse. I'm divine and my mind expands throughout the universe. A female rapper with a message to send. The Queen Latifah is a perfect specimen. My sister, can I get some? Sure, Moni Love, grab the mic and get dumb. Yo, praise me not. For being simply what I am Born in L-O-N-D-O and Salamander PRI Public Radio International